Good evening, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Futurati Podcast, where we dive into how emerging technologies will impact the world and your bank account. I'm Trent Fowler, and joining me as always is my co-host, Thomas Fry. Thomas and I are futurists, keynote speakers, and consultants with decades of experience in analyzing trends and communicating new developments to audiences across the world. Reach out to us at futuratipodcast.com slash contact dash futurati if you'd like to hire us for consulting, to speak at your event, or to advertise on your podcast. And I will note that I currently am in the market. Uh, I'm a machine learning engineer with four years of experience. I've worked with all the major database technologies and the standard machine learning stack. So if you want to reach out at the same address, futuratipodcast.com slash contact dash futurati if you've got a role for me i'd love to hear about it thomas we just wrapped up an excellent interview with venture capitalist rohit krishnan uh what was your major takeaway from it well i liked uh some of his thinking about um uh, how smart cities well I, I was reading into a lot of it because i've been doing a lot of research and you know we when we start thinking about smart cities we're, we're thinking about how we add layers of technology to the kind of what the cities already have um and in the but kind of that underlying uh network of people and um uh, uh transit and roadways and in all of the communication systems that cities currently have uh that has taken uh, in some cases thousands of years to develop and so um I'm instantly thinking that we're very short-sighted in, in when we talk about smart cities, about how we're going to change all that in the next couple of years here by just adding layers of technology to it. Um, that that struck me as a um, kind of a, a short-term oversight on our part. I thought it was very interesting how his skepticism of some of the ongoing chartered city projects actually stem from a failure to appreciate why it is that cities spring up in certain places in the first place. Uh, I hadn't really given that much thought, but I think he's absolutely right. And I, I'd say the, the main leitmotif in the interview was human coordination, how it is that groups of humans can act together in order to accomplish goals. And that's something that I've been thinking more and more about over the past couple of years as I've worked at startups and big companies. And I've just kind of been able to bear witness to various approaches to solving this problem and the pros and cons of each. And it's also a theme that's come up repeatedly on the podcast. So we've had Samuel Burian to talk about some of those things, uh, Vunya Chakarova and various people who think more about geopolitics or social systems or social operating systems, if you will, the tech stack of a social order. And I'm really excited to see you know, a mind like his trying to grapple with that question and how it could change in the future. Yeah, we asked him several questions related to Peter Thiel, and he's he's actually studied Peter uh, from a number of different angles. Um, he he tends to be a lightning rod for um, making comments that on the surface don't initially make sense, but then when you look uh, drill down a little bit, then you can see where he's coming from, and uh, it's it's interesting how this. Um, this friction actually plays well in society that uh, uh, it ends up stirring up lots of commentary from people around, around the internet, um, just making a, a simple statement, like, I don't want to invest in any PhDs or MBAs, uh, yeah. which, which is counter to what a lot of people are thinking, but uh, the world of academia is not, been doing the best job lately. And so they're not endearing a lot of people to their, their cause. That's right. So audience, listeners, this is an interview with Rohit Christian. We cover emerging tech, venture capital, cooperation, and Peter Thiel. So we hope you enjoy it. Tonight, we're joined by Rohit Krishnan. Rohit is a venture capitalist and a writer at strangeloopcanon.com. He invests in companies using cutting-edge technology to create the future. He also writes essays about exploration of ways to push the frontier of our knowledge forward and bridge the gaps between business, science, and technology. If you enjoy this interview, please check out our website, futuratipodcast.com, and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast, like it, and share it with your friends. Rohit, thanks so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for uh, contacting. 
Absolutely. Have to put a Let's face see. to the Twitter. To the Twitter, yeah. Although my my profile picture does have my face on it, but this is like you get to see it from other angles as well. <laughs> it's uh, it's it's there are a few more dimensions, which is nice. Yeah. <laughs> Let's hear a little bit about your background, your interests, and what brought you to working on the problems that you're working on today. Uh, broad question. So uh, I guess background, I grew up in South of India, studied in a whole bunch of different schools, moved to Singapore when I was 17 uh, to do university, etc. Was there for a few years, studied um, engineering and economics, and then, you know, did a bunch of stuff, including um, working in banking, doing a startup, um, ran a fund for a couple of years, and then decided to sort of come to London, partly to do business school, then um, ended up effectively living here for the past decade. It wasn't particularly what I expected, but you know, came here, met my wife, did a few years in consulting as a job. Um, and currently I work in venture capital where among other things I invest in, um, post seed, I would say like series A, series B, um, stage innovative companies, oftentimes using cutting edge tech, but more on the software side. So primarily AI enabled so how uh, do you, type companies is what I invest in. So how do, you, how do you find the companies that you're looking for? I mean, there's a particular niche of companies that you're more likely to invest in. Uh, so how do you find them and how do you uh, kind of uh, do your due diligence and rake them through the coals and understand what's, what's going to work and what isn't? Um. So most, like if I think about the companies, like a percentage of them is, you know, inbound, right? I mean, you get connected through sort of people contacting you, sort of generally just having a wider surface area. You do end up in contact with a larger number of companies. Um, apart from that, there's a hell of a lot of outbound conversations as well as networking, right? I mean, you talk to other investors, figure out which companies are invested in. Occasionally there are spaces that you have emerging theses about that you go down rabbit holes on and then you realize oh okay that there is potentially an interesting company at the bottom there somewhere that you know we should kind of have a look at speak to a bunch of them and then try to figure out which one of those things actually you like so fairly haphazard is the answer i think that's the answer for almost everybody um <laughs> and part of the reason is because like ultimately you're looking for companies that are doing something better than everyone else or like you're looking for companies that are doing something different to everyone else and by definition, you can't predict exactly what they are, right? You can have a sense about the space in which you think it might be interesting and like, but it's not like you can predict the business model. So you're trying to kind of find the right pond to fish in and have a bunch of tries in the hope that like some of the fish that you catch end up becoming uh, slightly more interesting over a period of time. Um, due diligence is a, I mean, it's a bit of a loaded question, but like at our stages, you know, I look at series B, C as well, which means there's a bit more data. Um, I think of it a little bit as like there is offensive due diligence and defensive due diligence. Defensive is, is a little bit like, you know, look at the numbers, talk to the customers, you know, basically check to make sure that what they're telling you is actually reality. And that's just kind of like, you know, the basic gut check that you have to do anyway. It's very rare that you invest on the basis of defensive due diligence, right? I mean, you kind of see a company, you're like, all right, I mean, you know, SaaS company, great growth, great net revenue retention. Therefore, let me put my money in is a conversation nobody has because that's basically, you can automate that, right? You don't need an investment professional to make that decision. The offensive due diligence is a little bit closer to like creating a thesis on a space, a sector, figuring out an argument about a future that you think is viable and kind of driving towards that a little bit. Like, you kind of have to say something to the order of, um, you know, cybersecurity is a massive um, industry that is currently undergoing growth. Even now, there's a huge number of problems primarily on the endpoint or network side. This company has a chance of sort of solving it. If they solve it, this is what the future will look like and make a qualitative judgment that steps outside the purely number-based kind of analysis and have you figure out whether this is something you want to place a bet on. Um, and ultimately, I suppose, know that it is a bet right because these are companies trying to do hard things so like some of them aren't going to make it what, what are some uh what are some theses that you're considering right now so you said you're looking into ai enabled tech uh your venture capital with bleeding edge technology what what what, what are your most interesting theses that you're exploring right now <clears throat> so a couple of the areas that i'm looking at um 
I think there is a there is a broad consensus around application of AI that we have created on the research side to something that in resembling reality, touching the world as it were. So there is a few different applications of that that could be interesting. Um, we've had sort of glimpses of that looking at fitness, you know, applying to health and fitness, using AI to figure out, you know, the, the personalized regimens or, you know, measuring the body biometric, that sort of stuff. That's one side. Similarly, applying things like deep learning for cybersecurity, which we kind of talked about to try and figure out whether we can, you know, prevent attacks as opposed to just detect and respond to them faster, um, uh, which is kind of, uh, there are a few really interesting companies, one in particular that we've invested in that is kind of going directly after that space. Um, there is a broad array of, um, as software has become easier and easier to create, there's a proliferation of the number of software tools that have come up that are specialized in doing one individual task, right? I mean, you have entire startups devoted to creating like the sales team optimization or like increased conversion rates of your cold call or whatever. I mean, there's a bunch of these like niche things that have pop up. Each one of them are, it's very doubtful that one of them will become, I don't know, $100 billion company, but like there are a larger number of them that are coming up. And as there is proliferation there, I think one of my theses is that collaboration amongst these things or coordination amongst these things is a incredibly difficult task. So orchestration generally as a play, something that I'm intrigued by, whether that is inside the, um, uh, call it like, I don't know, no code movements. You need something to orchestrate your workflow between all of those things, whether it's in FinTech where you need orchestration platform that can touch upon, you know, the 75 different things that a platform has to do, everything from whatever, you know, KYC to internal, you know, workflow settings to change management, whatever, um, or even to things, you know, that are like slightly more boring on the internal workflow management, company management, BI, that sort of space. Because like generally as more and more individual API based points come out, having them talk to each other and come out with interesting answers is becoming harder. Um, as you would note, none of these are quiet, you know, quantum teleportation, but uh, they are intriguing. <laughs> yeah. So Peter Thiel is actually, um, he, he uh, takes kind of a, a different view on, on uh, uh, kind of the academic world and, um, he made a statement recently that he said that he, he wants to invest in biotech companies, but he doesn't want any that are run by PhDs or MBAs. And, um, and there, there's something about um, being overly qualified to be, a, be an entrepreneur. And uh, I, I don't know if you share that opinion or uh, what, what you think about that approach to <laughs> investing. So I disagree. But I also note that Peter has a habit of making highly provocative statements that he doesn't particularly adhere to all the time either. So I think what he's I mean, Musk. Yeah. So I, I feel like this is one of those statements that can, you know, you can act, choose as a litmus test, right? Like if you're somebody who disagrees with him, you can take him at the letter of the word and kind of go after it and prove that he's a hypocrite or whatever. Or if you're kind of pro teal, you can kind of use the statement and say what he actually meant to say was something different. So I don't know is the answer. But the more interesting uh, flip of this is that very often, like as investors, but not just as investors, as humans, as in sort of pretty much any walk of life, one of the things that you try to do is to figure out heuristics that allows you to kind of simplify complex systems to something resembling, you know, an easier decision-making criteria. Um, now, as a consequence of that, you can kind of use that, look at it and go, um, should I really be saying no to somebody because they had a business school degree? And the answer is obviously no, right? I mean, like, that seems like a silly rule to have. However, I think one of the, the constant threads in uh, Thiel's conversations has been that like more and more today, we are focused on getting better at games that society has set, whether that is doing better in school, better in school, better in school until you get a PhD or like, you know, going to business school, going to consulting, banking, law, whatever, um, in order to try and go up in that career and solve individual games. And none of those are conducive to extraordinary innovation. I think that's a fair statement to make, I think, at least in a broad brush. Um, I, my personal belief, which I have no way to empirically test is that if you take these highly educated people kind of provide them the right motivation or base, 
oftentimes they would end up jumping out and creating innovative, extraordinary companies. And my, my um, friend, Matt Clifford here runs Entrepreneur First, which is proving out that thesis. So it's by no means like an ironclad law of nature. The general thesis that we are a little bit more, um, or at least there's a larger group of people who are highly educated, who are more risk averse, who don't necessarily make the best entrepreneurs is like, I mean, numerically true. However, I don't think it gives us any amount of information to make judgment on an individual case, um, which is okay. the slightly unhelpful wouldn't... conclusion we end at. Hello, this is Trent Fowler, co-host of the Futurati podcast. One of the most common pieces of marketing advice I've come across is to know your audience and give them what they want. One difficulty in podcasting is that it's actually pretty hard to do this. None of the major platforms give us any way to reach out to you, our listeners, to find out what you enjoy about the Futurati podcast and what you'd like to see done differently. So we've decided to record this commercial and ask you directly to reach out to us. Head over to futuratipodcast.com, go to the contact page, and drop us a line. Tell us about your favorite and least favorite episodes, what you'd like to see us cover in the future, and anything else you want us to know. We produce this show for you, and we want your advice so we can make it even better. Thank you. I yeah. suspect you wouldn't be all that terribly surprised. I mean, it's probably it's probably also true that the average IQ of PhDs is going down over time, simply because there's so much more of them, right? Like, we're just educating larger and larger swaths of society, so it's no longer you know, the most incandescently brilliant and well-positioned person who can afford a thing like that. It's, you know, it's, it's not common to have a PhD, but it's a lot less unusual than it probably was 40 or 50 years ago. And so, you know, you'd expect to get a broader sampling of the distribution of intelligence, of risk, uh, willingness to take on risk and all of those other big old things. So this is interesting, right? I, I think the, the society today is very different to like society, say, 50 years ago, right? I mean, for many, many different reasons. Um, we are much richer. We are, there are many, many more of us for, for, for another thing. Lo there is much higher levels of information transparency across the board. And this basically has changed sort of the game, if you will, that you would have played if you were sort of 50 years ago versus today. Um, and obviously this infects academia as well. I think I've kind of written about this a little bit. I think the broad conclusion is that um, today, like, you know, if you're going to become, I don't know, do a doctorate in chemistry or, you know, whatever, even philosophy, humanities, whatever, um, it is A, no longer assured that that actually provides you anything resembling, you know, the life of idea seeking that you would have had sort of 50 right. years ago. That's just because there is a supply demand mismatch between the number of positions, et cetera. Number two, there's also sort of, it's unclear that just by virtue of you wanting to go and do that, whether you're doing that to kind of satisfy some internal constraint of, um, you know, if I go off and do it, then my parents will be happy with me or like I will have a higher stature in society because you now know that this is a game that can be played. Whereas several years ago, there was a little bit more self-selection, but part of it is also because there are just sort of fewer objective number of people who are jumping into this in the first place. So we are a, a little bit like victims of our own success in a way, right? Um, which like it happens. I mean, it's also interesting that like some of the largest uh, wealth creation has happened from people who had either dropped out of college or like who didn't go to college, but that's not a causal effect, right? I mean, it's it's coincidental just because they managed to do something that resulted in something. I wouldn't want to make too big a leap from that saying like you should do X or Y. I don't think it kind of jumps to that conclusion to, to, uh, to your point, Trent. So let, let me ask you this. Um, so given that you invest in all these people, you're sort of skeptical of Teal's thesis about MBAs in business school, just in, in you know, a minute or as quickly as you can do it, what, what do you think makes a good entrepreneur? Like, what do you look for? Knowing a problem well enough that they would want to go off and solve it. It's about as simple as that. Everything else comes after. Um, th there are plenty of skills that change as a company develops, et cetera, but in the beginning, a lot of it is just like, I care about this enough that I want to spend my um, effort, time, opportunity cost to try and go off and solve it. That's it. Like you can figure out the rest afterwards, right? I mean, of should you really be spending your time on whatever 10 minute grocery delivery versus 
building something more interesting. But that's not for me to say. It's if they have to be actually interested, passionate about going up and doing it. Uh, bear in mind, this doesn't say much about success, but this is something that I think is important. And I think passion in general is something that is overlooked quite often, I feel like. Are you enjoying this episode of the Futurati podcast? If so, please like it. Give the show a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and share it with your friends. By far, the best way to help us grow is to spread the word on social media, which will expose our content to more people and help us continue to bring you interviews with world-leading experts in AI, quantum computing, cryptocurrencies, and so much more. Thank you in advance. So recently you you wrote a column on comparing uh, kind of the Medici, uh, Cosimo Medici's set up where he was funding people like Michelangelo and Da Vinci and comparing that to the Thiel Fellowship where uh, Peter Thiel is giving $100,000 uh, to young people under the age of 23 that, um, um, and one of the requirements is that they drop out of school. And for some reason, he's had a really tremendous success with um kind of uh, landing on some unique individuals that have unusual ability to go off and do something with that money. Um, is that is that something that you think that we should uh, replicate and have more of around the world? I think you're muted. Got to have audio Sorry. for a podcast. Gotta yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You, uh, you meant the, the Teal Fellowship um, uh, by itself, right? Um, yes. The, so uh, my, I did write an essay, and part of the essay was marveling at the fact that this particular selection of whatever, 250 people over 10 years has had incredible success in terms of sort of what those people managed to go up and accomplish. Now... I definitely think that experiments like that are vastly underdone, that like we do need to do a lot more of these things. I think that even despite having an intuition that if we end up doing a lot more of it, then the impact will get diluted. Like the median Teal Fellowship winner is not necessarily um, changing the world, right? But the top Teal Fellowship winner, uh, Vitalik, is doing really well for himself. The second most economically successful, Dylan Field, you know, just sold Figma for like $20 billion. So like there is something to the argument that if you identify people early enough, early enough and empower them, then they will go off to do things that will surprise you. And there's also something to the point that you can actually pick out people who do not necessarily need um, conventional education, for lack of a better word. However, I'm not entirely sure that um, we have the ability to go off and do it in the first place, if that makes sense. Like, how do I put it? One of the very interesting parts of Thiel's uh, um, experiment was that as you know, a billionaire and running multiple funds, having huge number of calls on his time, he is still able to, he was still able to devote a huge amount of time and a very small sum of money, right? I mean, annually was whatever, 2 million or something, um, to doing something he thought was meaningful. And to me, that like the love of experimentation there is far more interesting. So one of the things that I found is like when I was looking around, at, you know, what do other billionaires do for, you know, uh, to solve their pet peeves? <laughs> very, very few of them, very, very few of them spend their uh, time in a meaningful sense, or very, very few of them spend their time on pursuits that, like, like Tila's, seemed more interesting. Like they would much rather spend two hundred million and endow a building to Stanford, or like spend that kind of money, set up a foundation where all of their money will go to do great works for the future, rather than do the nitty gritty work of like interviewing a bunch of people, finding 250 people over 10 years is like nothing. And then trying to see whether that experiment succeeded. Considering the experiment has succeeded, I think it is incumbent on us to see a, a lot more, you know, make it a lot more expansive so that we can capture more people and empower them. Especially because the 
counterfactual here is that a lot of them would have had to fight in the marketplace of ideas or you know choose your own metaphor um go to university try to get a phd try to get a job try to start a company and try to do those things after having gone through the same rat race that everybody else goes through so i like i guess my conclusion is that i think we should absolutely do it and i think we should do it despite the fact that doing it will probably dilute the amount of impact that will come out of it um and it will not dilute purely because of numbers right i mean i think there are far more than 250 people in a decade who are capable of producing extraordinary outcomes but i think we need to kind of institutionalize it a little bit just so that we as a society get better at measuring someone's worth with a few markers that are slightly different to you know where did you go to college and what did you study yeah you know, with with what he with what he's doing though um i mean it's not possible to get a phd for most people before the age of 23 um so he's actually taking a look at a much younger um subset of society than than most people are or or putting a magnifying glass on and so these um um there there's something to be said about the amount of information that we're being exposed to nowadays i mean young people today are 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 sitting watching as many as a thousand tiktok videos in a day and um and uh be, people growing up are exposed to a thousand headlines every day and and so this volume of information is um is creating minds um and understanding that just wasn't uh, at all possible even 10 years ago um so in in some in some ways we're 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 trying to reinvent the experiments for how we adjust society and how we um how we leverage the talent that's percolating up from the bottom and uh, i i think we we have a long ways to go on these experiments to to find uh the true gems in society and i often ask this question of um how many einsteins and and mozarts are born in every million people and can there be more and should there be more and i th- i think absolutely um yeah we are seeing some of the results from this i think like at least in the, over the last year we've had a proliferation of new organizations that have come up to replace various different scientific fields you know new science for bio etc emergent ventures by tyler cowen as an example we we are starting to see the flourishing of a new group of you know modern medicis for lack of a better word or a slightly grandiose title who have taken it upon themselves to rectify this talent misallocation problem of to solve both the idea that we can find people who are misplaced in society in some ways like you know their talents are being misutilized and also the fact that you know once we find them we can empower them by making them part of a group of people where um you don't really need to worry a huge amount about the individual performance of one person because it's the collective performance of a portfolio or a cohort that is more interesting which i think is a reasonably useful counterweight to sort of the way the average works right i mean this this is all of this work is at the margins because this doesn't impact the vast majority of the millions of people who actually go through the collegiate system what it does impact is a few of the outliers and capture them to your point you know the one in a million mozarts to be able to fulfill their potential and hope for the fact that if more of us fulfill our potential in general everybody's life would be better off which i feel again is probably not a empirically provable thing uh, sorry it's not a analytically provable thing but i empirically i feel reasonably confident that this is the case yeah you uh you said that you your buddy is operating entrepreneur first i i might be misremembering this but i'm fairly certain one of our prior guests gina gorlin does consulting through entrepreneur first and she is a psychologist who spends a lot of time thinking about ambition and goal setting and how you can kind of construct your own character and i i completely agree that i mean not not just helping the medium person get a little bit better but but mining more of that right tail could have enormous consequences i mean think think of what somebody like john von neumann got done in the 20th century or or albert einstein if you had even one more of them like it's hard to even imagine where where the world would be now so you know it's a matter of shifting i think the you know the mean to the right as much as you can bringing up the left tail but yep. then doing as much as you can to help those stars on the right shine 
100%. I, I mean, I think it's exactly right. You know, there, the, there's an economic argument. You have an extra John von Neumann and you have whatever, an extra Einstein. You can push forward science and technology frontiers quite a lot more. There's also sort of a human argument to say that if you're able to let people pursue the paths that they themselves feel they're most suited to, interested in, want to contribute towards, passionate about, want to work hardest in, then the general quality of life that people have will increase immensely as well, right? 100%. Um, and they're not necessarily related to the economic argument up to a certain point, perhaps they are, but like very quickly you reach a point of diminishing returns if it's purely about you know, maximizing the ROI and a dollar that you could have spent elsewhere. Instead, you're trying to maximize something closer to sort of the social capital that you want to get out of it. Mm -hmm. So whether that is things like people quitting and pursuing their own paths, um, independent consulting or like, you know, writing, advocating speeches, like there's, there's a set of activities that people can do in order to either help raise the aspirations of others or it help humanity in general, independent researchers. There are a few folks who are kind of saying like, um, I mean, Ant, uh, Anton House is a, is a, is a, a, a post PhD actually, uh, per, um, doctor here who writes a substack, um, Ages of Invention, which is wonderful. Uh, and he's sort of recently written or released a second book, sort of uh, released a couple of years ago, but did the party. And one of the interesting things is like, he's one of those people who opted out of the traditional mode of research as exists within an academic institution, because it would have um, put him in a box effectively, right? I mean, it would have made, uh, the, there is only a limited set of things that you are allowed to do under the strictures. But now, mm -hmm. because he's outside, um, he's able to, sort of push his research agenda and follow the rabbit holes that he's interested in to a much larger degree than he would have been able to do otherwise. And what we pay for um, in terms of even being highly sort of charitable, higher levels of accuracy or, you know, um, societal academic acceptance by working inside as a doctor of X at Oxford, I genuinely feel that you probably do far more for the world if you step outside and you're able to do this. Um, you know, you're able to encourage people to pursue the rabbit holes that they're most interested in. I mean, I'm not sure. to back lyrical, I think like the capitalist system generally works because we expect people to be able to spend their time uh, most wisely or spend their money most wisely in areas that are best for them. And we put some guardrails around it, but like mostly, you know, um, Adam Smith's uh, famous line about, you know, the baker doesn't bake for his, um, for himself, right? I mean, he, he does it in order to earn and together that ends up becoming uh, a society that is good for everybody. I think something similar also exists in terms of following your own passions and aspirations. Do you need a dynamic and knowledgeable speaker for an event? Thomas Fry and me, Trent Fowler, are both seasoned keynote speakers able to converse on a wide array of topics to audiences of all sizes and skill levels. Go to the contact page at futuratipodcast.com to book Thomas or myself today and let us apply our years of experience in public speaking to make your event a smashing success. So what are some, um, some of the big things that you would like to get accomplished in, in your career. I mean, you're in kind of a unique position. You can fund things then, and you can motivate people in unique and different ways. And you also have a, a very global perspective of the world. I mean, you've, you've traveled a lot, you've been around the world, you've, you've been exposed to different uh, societal conditions. Um, so, so if you're uh, able to reach in your pocket, pull out your magic wand uh, what, what is it that you want to accomplish here? It's a, <laughs> it's a good question. One that I, you know, uh, embarrassingly don't have a fantastic answer to. I mean, I think of things right now that I am intrigued by, which is probably a good starting point. I think one of the biggest themes that I would like to perhaps explore over the next, I don't know, 10, 20 years of my career is, um, how to how to make or how to help people work together better. I feel like there is this is one of the themes that is um, less explored in general, whether when we talk about business, culture, science, politics, et cetera. I feel like there's a question of like, how do you make a group of people come together and want to do X for any value of X and have them do it in a fashion that is relatively successful? And there are 
arguments here about incentives, arguments here about structures. There are arguments here about organizing setups, leadership structures, uh, leadership styles, cultures, et cetera. But effectively all of this comes down to like, once you add 10 people into the mixture, you have to work with your, like with them in some sense, like uh, you have to work with what, you know, um, I heard it from uh, Jim Shaughnessy, he calling it the human OS. How do you kind of hack the human OS so that you can build a bit more of a collaborative system? <laughs> um, I think this is one of the most interesting topics for me. I think it is, um, it, it's only obvious to me looking back over the last year in terms of things that I've written, but like it recurs again and again in terms of sort of this, this pops up, this question of both dysfunctionally as well as like functionally where the breakdown of our ability to work together has kind of caused larger calamities or catastrophes. Um, I feel this is one of the like broader themes that I would like to sort of work on um, for the, for at least sort of the next 10, 20 years. There is offshoots of this. One is like, there's a history of innovation project that I've been in the back of my mind that I kind of want to just understand for my own sake. I don't know what the output of that is likely to be. Um, but uh, I don't know if you've read sort of the, the essay, I pencil, it's from a while back, oh, yeah. but effectively it kind of uh, brings together the idea of how many different things need to happen for us to get, you know, a simple pencil in our hands, right? Um, I think some of the questions of innovation, et cetera, that I think get generally discussed uh, broadly in, in broad narrative terms, whether it's in uh, publications, essays, et cetera, kind of elide this particular um interdependence amongst a huge number of factors in order for us to get anything in our hands that is important. So if we ask the question of, I don't know, mRNA vaccines being invented, the causal chain kind of goes back a long way before we get to a point where we could have invented mRNA vaccines in the first place, right? I mean, like, even to the point that you need to have specialist types of um, uh, chemicals that we have to be able to produce in order to actually create and capture these things to transport them from point A to point B, or like in the manufacturing process, you need different ingredients that you wouldn't have been able to get otherwise. I think the, the mythical view of innovation is that, you know, it, it, it just clicks in your mind and all of a sudden you're, it's just, it's just done. Like that's how it gets depicted in movies, right? I mean, you kind of have an idea and everything from idea to execution is like, yeah, I mean, of course you can just go off and do it. Whereas in real life, like 95% of the work is going from idea to execution for almost everything. I think there's a, um, looking back to see what that process has been through our history, human evolution is, some, is like a broader project that I'd like to spend time on a little bit more. Um, I think everything else, obviously kind of <laughs> the, the format of it, whether it's, you know, something simple on GitHub or whether it's a book or, something broader, I don't know. We'll figure it out as time goes on. I think I'm very much at the experimentation phase of figuring out what this looks like. So you've got a good idea and now you're doing the 95% of the work involved in actual execution. Uh, I would maybe say that I have, an in, I have a few interesting questions that I, at least I find interesting. And I feel like the answers here could be interesting. The, the amount that I've dug in both of these sort of types of questions I continue to find the answers um, interesting. However, whether they are um, interesting is something only time will bear out, I feel. So how, how do you think, uh, well, actually, before I get there, are you familiar with Samo Budia? Uh, Samo, uh, from the Great Founder Theory? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We, uh, we, uh, we've done two interviews with him where we get into some of that stuff, social institutions and how they change over time and why you'd want to make an immortal society. So it's all good stuff. It uh, doesn't exactly answer the questions you're talking about, but I think it does redound to them. And so you might be interested in checking those out. I know that uh, Definitely. from your, from your uh, I forget if it's Substack or Medium uh, or your website, you talk about your interest in the organization. And it seems like this is uh, reminiscent of the themes that you were just raising. So how do you think organizations organizations are going to change over time in response to technology? What do you think is going to stay the same? Because not everything changes. And how will that, um, how will that be impactful? Very good question and very tough question as well. Um, <laughs> the, maybe just as a prelude, I think I had a look at the types of organizations that we've had the longevity, that, that, that's had the most longevity. And if you kind of look at that, there's a few interesting threads that pop out, right? So if you look at organizations that have survived, you know, whatever, 
a few hundred years. A large percentage of them are institutions that are either um, interlinked with governments in some meaningful sense or the financial system, things like banks, most example. I think, you know, Barclays was set up a few years ago, Bank of England in the 1600s, et cetera. A few of them are things like very local um, examples, like Japan has a huge number of these companies which have been established for like a thousand plus years. Germany has, I think, a brewing house that was set up sort of, you know, several hundred years ago. There's a few of these companies that effectively get set up and just never change and keep providing the same things over and over. You go back even further, you start seeing things like the Icelandic parliament, which was set up sort of, you know, a thousand plus years ago, or you see, you know, more interestingly, religions, which kind of survive for a very long time. It's, it's pretty hard to kill a religion, it feels like. And as you kind of look at the causal chains here, what you notice is that almost all of them have two components. Component number one is that there's a self-perpetuation component in the sense that they're set up so that they can replicate and move on to the next phase. Um, uh, it's like it's the highest, for example, amongst the more proselytizing religions, which happen to have been the ones that have been the most successful. Um, and the second component is that most of them don't particularly want to grow. Right. I mean, in the sense that like they're not trying to actively find hunt, mutate into a new form for them to grow. They either die out. You know, there are very few people who are, you know, who uh, uh, like worship certain gods anymore. But like then there are large number of religious people that exist sort of even today, even after everything. So when we think about these things in terms of organizational setups, I think one of my beliefs is, number one, um, beyond a certain point, I feel like some type of hierarchical organization is relatively inevitable for all sorts of reasons. I think this was sort of one of the first things that I wrote this like for information to flow up and down and through the organization in somewhat resembling uh, an efficient manner, you do need some level of hierarchy. And this is as true in biology as it is in organization. And number two is like organizations survive and grow by actively finding new niches, niches to conquer, right? Within the society. And however you kind of define it, oftentimes new niches get created through the emergence of new technology. <laughs> there was no, I don't know, like, mobile gaming niche in early 2000s because mobile games didn't really exist. But as soon as it became possible, you know, you started getting new companies kind of pop up. So <clears throat> the first point of how do we kind of work together, at least as long as humans are humans, which, you know, depending on who you ask, the timelines are a little fuzzy, but I, I'm generally of the opinion that I think humans will remain humans for a little while. Um, we will have some form of hierarchical organization is inevitable. What will change is the type of incentivization structures that actually exist within organizations. So to put maybe a couple of concrete predictions in terms of what this might turn out, if you look at the, the corporate lifetimes have shortened over a period of time, but you know people's employment histories have gotten a lot more checkered in the sense that like they jump from company to company rather than staying in the same one for 40 years. Um, we are all like, as the eventual endpoint of this, especially once you add remote into the work equation, is that you will start to see a lot more portfolio careers amongst people. So organizations will start to have looser boundaries around them where people can jump in and out a little bit easier than they can today, right? I mean, you don't need to jump through a hundred hoops to get to a place to stay there for 40 years anymore. It becomes much looser of like jump through three hoops to get somewhere to stay there for two years. Instead of that, jump to one hoop in order to get somewhere, work two days a week there for like X, X amount of time, and then you can swap in and out. Um, it's already the way a lot of professions exist at like the extremes, like the very, very low paid and gig working economy. This is how it works, right? Getting a job is relatively easy. Uh, you oftentimes have multiple jobs at the same time because you kind of have to, and you, you know, swap them back and forth, depending on what you want to do. Uh, at the very high end, it's very similar. You might have multiple board positions, a visiting lectureship, speaking engagements, a, a book, you have portfolio life, a portfolio work streams that kind of come up. I feel uh, you know, one of the endpoints that we are going towards in terms of working with others is that as coordination gets better and better over a period of time, we will start to see that boundaries um, dissolve. Now, whether this specifically will be more decentralized, centralized, I feel like it's probably, you know, I, I'm a little bit more Wittgensteinian in that I don't think those uh, phrases are all that very well defined because some level of hierarchy is inevitable. So whether you call someone an MD, a CEO, a founder, you know, whatever, I don't know what you would call um, Linus in terms of Linux, but like, right, right. like I don't, it, the, the title doesn't really matter, right? You know, techno king equivalent, 
they will be able to push through things that, um, anyway, but some form of that hierarchy is going to be inevitable. And like, you will have people kind of trying to move across those things. I think that is, uh, to, to use one of Bezos' terms, one of those things that will be true in 10 years, 20 years as it is today. Fantastic. Um, Thomas, are we coming up on time? Um, yeah, we have, uh, we have time for one more question here. Um, so Rohit, you've, um, uh, you're, you're looking at everything through the lens of, of corporations and startups. Um, some of the, the entities that have been around for thousands of years have been our cities and, um, we're seeing lots of work going into the kind of the smart city, um, thinking right now, moving forward. Um, the cities have survived thousands of years, even though the countries that are uh, surrounding them have changed. And, uh, and so there's been a lot of, uh, a lot of, a lot of thinking surrounding city states and city uh, governments and how that's going to evolve. Uh, do you have some thoughts on, on how that's, these changes are going to change moving forward? Oh, definitely. Um, this is a very interesting one because I, I I wrote an essay. I think it's called "Thinking Like a City," where um, it's I, I like it a lot, and it's something I think about very often, uh, despite I've, having been something that I've I've written a little while ago. And part of it is exactly like you said, Thomas. It's like um, cities seem immortal. You know, Jericho is still around, right? Like, I mean, the cities that we find are thriving is are oftentimes cities that have survived all. So like, you know, survived um, wildfires and famine and war and, you know, name anything. I think cities kind of end up surviving things that like you normally wouldn't expect them to be able to survive. Some of that is because cities are unlike companies or most types of organizational setup, cities are um, effectively freely chosen platforms, right? I mean, the city levies a tax on you for you to be able to live there and actually apply your trade. But usually it doesn't impose a huge amount of restriction on you in terms of sort of what you can do. Nobody tells you like, you can only open a barbershop here or you know you can only open a computer repair shop here, et cetera. Like it, it allows you to kind of go off and find your own things, uh, find your own sort of ways of making a living or like you know applying a trade, setting up a shop, setting up a school, whatever. Um, the consequence of this is that companies scale linearly or, you know, um, sublinearly, whereas cities scale super linearly. Like add more people, you suddenly have more innovation coming up, more PhDs per capita, more you know growth per capita, TFP increases. Like name any metric, cities kind of get better. Um, the focus, therefore, of cities as the atomic unit where interesting things happen, I feel is completely correct because it is you know people choose cities to move to more often than they choose countries to move to. Um, or rather they choose a country because of the city rather than the other way around. You would choose New York and then move there for sort of whatever reasons, economic reasons, studies, like college reasons, et cetera, rather than saying like, I want to go to the US, where should I go? Let me end up in New York. I feel like the former happens a lot more. Now, coming down to things like charter cities and things like that, I think a little bit of it is that unfortunately cities so far have all been bottom-up phenomenon, right? I think the, I, I remember reading something like almost all cities are next to, uh, or almost all large cities are next to uh, bodies of water, either rivers or the sea, just because like you needed it in order for to form a city until fairly recently. I think Johannesburg is the largest city that is not next to a body of water. I might be misremembering that. Um, so when I look at most of the charter city examples, the one in Honduras, et cetera, they're trying very hard to create a place that acts as a destination that attracts people but doing it slightly in a top-down manner by providing incentives, SEZs, et cetera, as opposed to kind of finding a place where something already exists and build up from there. If I, I mean, I would be much more intrigued to find a place like Singapore in the 60s, which was, you know, not especially great, but was in the right strategic location. It already had an economy and then you could build up from there as opposed to trying to kind of create a de novo brand new city like, I think they did Putrajaya in Malaysia or like Abuja in Nigeria, neither of which have been sort of what you would call resounding successes in terms of sort of acting as a, as a, as a place to kind of grow. So this is something that I kind of go back and forth on. Um, I am optimistic on our ability to try to go for it. I think the things like what Balaji's book says of, you know, network states are interesting. Yeah. Um, the counterpoint there is very much that like, if you are able to actually do that, right? I mean, if you're able to create a network state 
which acts as a group of people with whom you identify, then you know, have a physical location where you kind of go. By definition, we are coming back into the original organizational conversation where the boundaries are very fuzzy, which means there's nothing stopping me from being a part of five network states. Whereas today, I live in one city in one country. I think that it kind of makes the identification much fuzzier. And that also means like the impact that it can have will be a little less. Um, I'm pretty excited to see what comes out of this. We are as well. Thank you so much. That was that was fascinating. This has been a great conversation. Absolute yeah, pleasure. Thank yeah, you for the this, questions. Yeah, this is this is great. I uh, I learned a lot here actually. <laughs> so do you want to do you want to send the audience anywhere uh, while while we're wrapping up? Where, where do you want people to go? Um, if you want to chat with me, I'm at Krishnan Rohit on Twitter, and um, I write on www.strangeloopcanon.com. So say hi. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Pleasure, guys. Thank you. All right. Well, well, that uh, that is terrific. Um, all right. Uh, well, I appreciate you joining us for the podcast today, and um, hopefully, you will have better luck with your keys moving forward. Uh, yeah. <laughs> if history is any guide. Uh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Get one of those uh, keypads for the side of your house. There. I think that we keep we keep talking about it. I think yeah. this might be the next uh, next project. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Uh, well, appreciate it, and uh, you have a you have a terrific day moving forward. Fantastic, okay? pleasure All speaking right. with you guys. Ciao. All right, thanks, Rod. Thomas, we just wrapped our interview with Roe Christian, and one of the things we spent a lot of time on was cooperation, how it happens currently and how it will change in the future. So as a futurist, what do you think is the future of human cooperation? Well, see, we're, we're developing a lot more lines of communication. And so the idea of cooperation uh, takes on kind of new dimensions when uh, you're cooperating on TikTok versus mm -hmm. cooperating on Facebook and cooperating through a, a telephone conversation or a Zoom call. Uh, this idea of cooperation has many more dimensions than ever, ever before in history. Um, so we also have this problem of uh, people who are uncooperative. We, we also have many, many more lines to sever, so to speak, if we're going to uh, disconnect from those uh, people that are uncooperative. And so we have to look at it from both perspectives. Fantastic. There you go, guys. The future of cooperation. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs> <laughs>